Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher from Los Angeles. How you doing, Scott? Wow, from L.A. That's, yeah. Uh, what are you doing in L.A., Kara? I mean, by the way, I'm in London, but what, what are you doing in L.A.? I'm here in L.A. for the Upfront Summit, hosted by Upfront Ventures, and I'll be interviewing, among other people, Jamie Lee Curtis and also the head of uh, Universal Pictures, uh, Donna Langley, together um, about her, about her Oscar thing, them about the Oscars, essentially. And then I'm interviewing Mark Benioff, which I, I can't believe I, I, it's worked out so perfectly because he turned in really good earnings yesterday. Um, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to go back and forth here. And then I'm appearing on The Lovett Show, The John Lovett Show. Um, and, uh, tonight uh, he had, he had, he tapes it at a comedy club and then some other various and sundry LA type things. He's the pod save America guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's a great like guy. Yeah, he's, he's a, a friend guy. of mine. He's good. He, it's a fun show. He does it. We should try it sometime. He does it at a com, typically at a, a public venue and yeah. it's really fun. A lot of drinking and stuff like that. It's fun. I yeah. like it. Well, yeah. Good. I'm glad you're there. Where do you stay when you're in LA? What do I? Oh, I stay at Brooks. I stay at Brooks. Brooks. She always has a beautiful home. Yeah, she's uh, she's uh, Brooke Hammerling is a friend of mine, and she's uh, she. I stay at her house. I don't like hotels, Scott. I'm not a hotel person. Really? Can I avoid it unless they're really beautiful? Like I stay at the Marriott Hotel or stay at the Waldorf. Those are two. LA is a great hotel city. It is. I have stayed at beautiful hotels here. That is fair, but I prefer to stay with friends. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like it better. Anyway. Um, get my car, I drive around. Anyway, uh, nice. but it's freezing. So it's it's colder than D.C., which was a little bit of a shock. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, what what are you doing? How's London? Speaking of cold. Uh, I'm back. I'm jet lagged, which means I'm an even bigger asshole than I usually am. Good. Um, good. Consistency. Yeah, back. It's, good to, it's good to be with the dogs. You know, kids yeah. are all right, but it's really good oh, nice to see the dogs. <laughs> um, the worst. I'm intervening. Yeah, I'm going to... Back I'm calling London. British whatever it is you yeah, call. I went to this concert last night. There's this great club called Coco, and it's such a unique concept. It's, of course, it's a members-only club because I'm very fancy, Kara. Yes, I know you are and fancy. And it's such a unique idea. They took essentially like a Soho House kind of zero bond kind of club idea, mm -hmm. and it butts up to a really beautiful concert hall. Oh. And so you have your, your fun, aspirational dinner with other, you know, hotter 
um, more interesting people, i.e. everyone right. uh, than me. Right. And then they have this members entrance into the venue and you see this this crazy concert with a DJ, but you're in your nice, safe, older person balcony. <laughs> it really Literally. is. Hello, oh, yeah. Mr. Elite, man of Hello. the people, Scott Hello. Galloway. Oh, yeah. I have no desire to be that. Anyways, yeah. it just amazes me how how basically the economy, the market is 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 totally morphing around what I call the one percent. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think of Disney. Disney used to be everybody bought those stupid books with A, B, C, D, and E tickets and waited in mm -hmm. the same line. Yeah. And now you have the fast pass. Well, that's yeah. not enough. If you can afford five or six thousand dollars, you get a VIP tour with some really high EQ person from Wisconsin mm -hmm. who bypasses the entire line right. and gives you a hand signal to take the ride again if you want. Mm -hmm. And the whole world, and this is there's, you know, it's great to be in the one percent, but I think it's a, kind of a negative looking forward indicator. Prime means the revolution is coming. The whole world is being optimized for the 1% and these members clubs yeah. are, are popping up everywhere. There's it, there's in New York, there's Soho House, Zero Bond, Casa Cipriani, Five Hertford is opening there. And it's just slowly but surely, everything's going on. They can't iOS take a Android. restaurant? They can't take a going into a restaurant and waiting their turn? No, I guess not. When you say they, who's they, you mean? The 1%, like mostly, I mean, because restaurant, we, I was in New York last weekend, as you know, yeah. and it was hopping, I have to say, yeah, everywhere. packed. It's packed. packed, but but it wasn't just the one percent. It was all over the place. People no, are if like, you're in Manhattan, you're probably in the one percent. No, I wasn't. You may not feel Brooklyn. like it, but you're in the one percent. Oh, no, no, Brooklyn. Brooklyn's the point. It was young people. It was all young people. Yeah, I didn't down, feel like down like, with the regular folks. Feel like Club Coco. It did not Brooklyn. feel. It was a brewery. Yeah, it did not feel yeah. like Club Coco. Yeah, it felt like most people could walk in. Anyway, my twenty-eight dollar hamburger and down in dirty Brooklyn. My hamburger was not twenty-eight dollars, but nonetheless, I don't. I don't roll like you, Scott. I roll a little less. You roll fancy. larger. You just yeah. like to put on this facade that you're a woman of the people. No, I'm Anyways. not a woman. I never say that. Not once. Not once not do once. I say that. Oh, yeah. I'm educated in America with an excellent education, and I've worked educated hard. Educated so. in America? Well, that's the most I mean, elite thing in the I've world. I've gotten all the advantages. Didn't you get being... all these medals from Georgetown and go to a private school? I mean, anyways, I did. Yeah, well, you try, you, I've been very insulting to me lately. You I'm not insulting. This is you how I express affection. I Mr. Coco. Anyway, today we'll talk about Jack Dorsey's new social media app. Also, the COVID lab leak debate is back, and we'll speak with friend of Pivot, Mehdi Hassan, about how to win arguments with your friends, enemies, and podcasts. Hmm hosts and what others. You know? But first, Elon Musk's latest master plan. I call it the master baiting plan. Um, mm -hmm. The Tesla CEO unveiled a five-point plan for, quote, fully sustainable Earth on Wednesday. Thanks, Elon. At the company's first live stream, Investor Day, the so-called master plan through, however, was short on specifics. And honestly, it read like Bill Gates's book from two years ago um, and many other people's books from many, all the years, sort of glommed together. What was missing from the nearly three-hour presentation uh, any new product updates, such as plans for mm -hmm. a more affordable electric vehicle, any new vehicle models at all, uh, any information uh, that robo-taxi fleet he promised during his last master plan. Tesla shares fell more than 5% in after-hours trading following the event. I mean, it was out to heat. Let's have heat pumps. Oh, good idea. It's happening already. We already had several people at code like that last year. And, you know, lots of people. That they, there was nothing fresh in this master plan for the universe. It was very weird. I watched it and, and it seemed chaotic. And, you know, it, I'm glad he's talking about it, I guess. What it, the event did reveal, though, is Tesla does plan to open a new factory in Mexico. Great. And they're way ahead in manufacturing. The Cybertruck is expected to ship at the end of the year. 
We'll see about that. Engineers are planning to cut assembly costs by 50%. Sounds great. And Elon says they're developing a humanoid robot. I I felt it was master plan too, was, which he promised a high-density urban transport. Um, and all he delivered was the Las Vegas Loop, which has a single-lane tunnel. I think this is just a lot of hand-waving, I'm sorry to say, even though I like the topic. Yeah, I couldn't help. And and granted, I look at all of this through a biased lens because I don't like the man. But I felt like the 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 thing in the room that we weren't talking about was Twitter. It's He, he struck me as a CEO who's been distracted with other things. Mm-hmm. And he got a bunch of notes and talking points from his comms and IR person and got on stage and kind of winged it. It was yeah. it felt to me like all icing, no cake. I mean, past presentations, he's gotten up there with new products and mm-hmm. – you know, kind of done uh, what I feel are very compelling things. And this just felt like a lot of jazz hands. This felt like a CEO whose promise has gotten way ahead of the performance, in my view. Yeah. And and the other thing I'm I'm really on to this notion, and I'm thinking of writing a book on it, is, huh. you know, we talk about... Didn't you just write a book? Didn't you just finish I'm finishing a book? A, I'm, fin- okay. I'm trying right. to finish a book right now. By the way, it, it, advice to anyone out there, never write a book. Never write a book. God. Both, both. It I know. It's like... Ugh, every day. I don't know day. if I'm going to make it. I have, I have March 31st as my deadline. We'll see. But yeah. yeah, my my agent said, what's a reasonable deadline? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't you know, know. When we colonize Mars, don't ask me. I'm, yeah. So anyways, but this notion that we're so focused on the emissions from from fossil fuels. And it struck me when he was up there saying we can have a world without fossil, you know, we can have a world that's all electric and it won't cost us a fortune, kind of portraying himself as a savior by reducing carbon emissions. Yeah. And I would argue that Elon Musk is an enormous, you know, coal fire plant of a more dangerous emission. And that is um, an economy that rewards get grabbing people's attention regardless of how damaging or divisive oh. the things you say are. Oh, that's a really good insight. And I think this guy is literally a, the biggest coal fire plant in history. And that yeah. is his own needs, an economy that rewards attention over why you're getting that attention has resulted in a level of rhetoric and a desperate need to command the news every day that, quite frankly, is not productive. It's divisive. Yeah. And whether yeah. it's weighing in on Dilbert or a- accusing a former head of safety who he didn't like of a sex crime with his Ph.D. thesis, those are noxious emissions yeah. that are damaging to the oh, world. I like this metaphor a lot. So. I'm I'm all on this thing because if you think about it, uh, uh, Biden's climate bill it claims that we'll be able to reduce emissions in the U.S. by 40 percent. Would it even be possible if and when we recognize how dangerous the emissions are from an attention-based economy, would it even be possible at this point to reduce divisiveness, polarization, and teen depression yep. by 40 percent? No. Could we even do it? No. no. So – you know, so while he's off talking about this Jesus complex of saving the world from yeah. carbon, I'm not. I'm. 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 I think we should be worried about climate change. I, I don't think. You know, I think we're addressing it, and that's not to absolve us of of making the requisite investments. Right. But I think we have a better chance. I think the most dangerous emission in the world is this emission of rage. I would agree. I I, I think. Look, of all the people who have changed the course of history in terms of getting us to electric. He's the keeper, he's a, right? He's That's the catalyst. Great. Catalyst, faster, no question. And that is his great, I, re, I know some people at this event last night, this dinner, some people who knew him pretty well. And 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 one of them thanked me for being so tough on him. It's like, I'm like, I wish you would focus back on 
this stuff and in real time, like, and actually mm-hmm. do it rather than waste his friggin' time. I said, he's ruining his legacy, which is this. Oh, yeah. But talk a, a leader talking about this stuff is a great thing, always, mm-hmm. right? To, to mm-hmm. folks, especially the people follow. And now it looks like he's just masturbating, master plan three. Like, give me master plan. Stop it. Like, Tomorrow stop it. belongs to me. I will build the master plan. None of these ideas are fresh and new. One, like literally it was Bill Gates' book, who he spends a lot of time insulting, by the way, who's probably doing more in terms of investing and focusing on it. But Elon's got a particular ability to focus people on this. He's got to run this company, which is really remarkable. Tesla's remarkable in manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. It's obviously overvalued. But nonetheless, it's way ahead of everybody else. And like, he's now humanoid robot. Okay, sure. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, focus on making Tesla better. Focus. And one of the things, I'll say one more thing, we got to move on, is I was I got out of Hertz yesterday. And, you know, I could pick, you can pick whatever car you want now if you're mm-hmm. in there, whatever gold circle. And there were lots of Teslas. I didn't want to get in one. I, honestly, I was like, I'm not using a Tesla. But there was the Kia Nero. There was a Chevy EUV. And I was getting into the Kia Nero because I wanted to try it, right? They didn't charge it at Hertz. They didn't charge it up. They had It was down at 94 miles. And I was like, hey, why don't you charge this fully so I can, it doesn't lose the charge, so I can use it. And they're like, well, you should go to your hotel and do that. And I thought, what is wrong with you people? Like, I would have totally taken it. Um, but I, I didn't know, I, I'm not staying somewhere where there's a charger and I didn't want to, you know, hunt around and everything. It, it's just, we've got to get on the plan here. And this guy could do it. And instead, he's doing the rest of this. And tomorrow, he'll, after all this, you know, Master Plan 1, Master Plan 2, he's going to say something stupid about, I don't know, Beyonce. Well, then he'll be he'll be dead when he does that. But um, but it's just, it's, it, he's such a waste of space at this point, given his promise. It's one of those. Anyway. I love um, Hertz. I bought a car um, yeah. from Hertz because I find that buying a car from Hertz is like marrying a prostitute. It may look good on the outside, but you have no idea who's been in it or what they've done to it. Uh, all right. Okay, fine. Whatever. I have not been in a rental car. One of the nicest things about my oh, life Ubers. Ubers. is I have not been in a rental car location or desk in yeah. a decade. I either take I like an Uber a car. or have a nice man pick me up in an internal combustion car getting four miles to the gallon. Yeah. Um, I, I do I not— like it. I, you know, several Never of my friends were like, why didn't you take an Uber? And I was like, I like a rental car. Anyway. You go to is, the thing and you rent the car? It, I just go. That's I get so to the bus. I get on and I don't have to wait. I don't wait in any lines. I just get it. Anyway, anyway moving on. Yeah, TikTok yeah. now has time limits for teenagers. The app will prompt users under 18 to enter a passcode in order to spend more than 60 minutes on the app. For users under 13, a parent will have to set a passcode in order to extend watch time. And then it will only be 30 minutes. TikTok announced the change on the same day the House Committee voted to advance legislation that would empower President Biden to ban the app. Are those changes good? I mean, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what's not to like about this? They'll, they'll put the passcode in. It won't stop them. It's the stop sign, right? I spoke at a WPP event in I Miami. I and I went and I went on this rant about, it was just so funny. You would have loved it. The woman running the event kept looking at me. So at first I talked about Walmart being in the Bible Belt and she looked at me and she's like, they're here, they're like, stop talking. And and I start talking about TikTok and she's like, they're here, stop talking. Oh, wow. And 
I went into my whole TikTok should be banned crap. Oh, yeah. And so, what are the nice people from TikTok do? They just couldn't be nicer. They came up and they gave me a TikTok backpack for my kids. What? (laughs) Oh, nice. And we were joking. Like, is there a listening device in here? Like, back to the thing. Ah, there is. And by the way, I just want to be clear every person I've met at TikTok is lovely. I would like them all to to get really wealthy. I would just like to see their wealth created as a function of a spin to American, American investors. Yes. You've made your opinion clear. Yes. But look, yeah, I think they're doing anything they can to try and spread Vaseline over the lens of the greatest propaganda tool in history. And I don't doubt it's a it's the right move. It doesn't do anything to address the fundamental problem. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you know, what's weird. I now believe and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find another academic to do the actual hard work or research here. Yeah. I believe it's been happening the last few years. I think, I think, and it's almost impossible to come up with the attribution, but Jonathan Haidt spent a better part of a decade to find that correlation does equal causation when it comes to social media and teen depression. I think in 10 years, someone like Jonathan Haidt is going to find that the um, poor feelings, the cynicism, and the general general negative outlook that young people have in America yeah. is largely driven by social media that the algorithms mm-hmm. like to elevate. And also, also, I think they're going to find a lot of it came from TikTok. Mm-hmm. And we'll never know, we'll never know if it was intentional. Oh, it was before TikTok. Facebook was doing this. And oh, Instagram. no, they're all guilty of it. Yeah. They're yeah. all guilty of it. But one has it as a motive for geopolitical purposes, and the others just have it as a profit motive. Yeah, okay. But now, in terms of the ban, civil liberties and digital rights groups are pushing back. Some bring up First Amendment rights. And Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo uh, says the ban on a single company would be short-sighted. Any reaction to that, Scott? Yeah, look, I, I don't... Uh, Michael Bennett is now uh, calling for a ban. I think yeah. this is really um, just the more I think about it, spending time on TikTok and what I see. Um, and it's just, uh, I, I don't even like to go, uh, I think a better argument or an easier way to get done would be like, well, let's just look at trade policy. What is China, yeah. of our media assets and companies, yep. what does China allow into China? Yeah. Um, I had the mo- I had lunch Zero. with the most interesting guy, this guy named Jamil Anderlini. He's the new editor-in-chief of Political in Europe. He's such an impressive young man. And he kind of ran me through a history of the rise of Xi Jinping and what's going on with the CCP. And it is frightening. I mean, it is really how many people have been imprisoned, um, how they're basically, this guy's kind of become uh, the Putin of Asia. And uh, I, I would be very, um, I'd just be shocked if they didn't have full-blown strategy meetings around, oh my God, we found the, the ultimate hypersonic missile, the ultimate defense shield, the ultimate offensive weapon, and it's called TikTok. Uh, I would love to have this thing as a geopolitical weapon. Anyways. Very nice TikTok, the band, but teens will go right, will blow right through that stop sign. We'll see. You think so? Um, because of the, of the uh, compelling, addictive nature of your terrific product that yeah, could be a propaganda, greatest propaganda tool in history. Um, and it also makes Scott feel bad. So anyway, um, <laughs> let's get to our first big story. Jack Dorsey is back in the social media game, but this time he's inviting others to play. The former Twitter CEO launched his new app, Blue Sky, in the iOS app store this week. It's an invite-only beta. A review from TechCrunch shows that on the surface, it looks a lot like Twitter, but under the hood, Blue Sky does something different. It runs on an open source protocol, which gives developers the chance to build their own social media apps with their own algorithms and moderation policies. It's pick the kind of 
thing you want, essentially. You know, pick your own social media network if you don't want any Kanye, if you don't, if you want lots of Kanye, whatever. It also lets users move freely between different apps. Um, that's drawing comparisons, not all of them favorable to Mastodon, another social media network um, built on a different but similar network. I think, what's he doing here? What do you think he's doing? Um, everyone thinks it's not being discussed as monetization. What's the play? If anyone can make an app on this protocol, someone could just make one without ads. My Mastodon runs on donations, for example. Blue Sky started as an in-house project at Twitter while Jack was in control, and it got uh, $13 million for R&D, I think mostly from him. So what what do we think? You know, I don't know that much about this. I, I In general, I'm just a big fan of competition. I love the idea of multiple players coming after Twitter's lunch. Jack Dorsey, you have to give him credit for being a genius product guy. But where I go is an odd place, and that is I go to corporate governance. Just uh, another indication of just what a feckless board Twitter is. Let me get this. The CEO and the founder gets to go start a competitor. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't like non-competes, but when the CEO who's made billions yeah, I think he's you still an owner. Yeah, you're not, you're not supposed to go start a competitor. I just can't believe the board never thought to put in a non-compete for the founder and the CEO. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I hope there's a lot of competition. I love, I'm super happy and enjoying my investment and involvement in Post. And the weird this thing is- Post is, News. This post is post News, yeah. Post and news, yeah. it's just a much cleaner, friendlier, more benign, more informative place to have a dialogue around news. And what's strange is, I'm really fascinated. I have been so addicted to Twitter for the better part of a decade and purposely not spending. I've reduced my time on it about 80%. I took 100% off for 60 days. Now I'm back to about 20%. And you make some observations. One, it's really good for your mental health not to be on it. And two, I can't get over I'm kind of back to... I looked up some people who are fairly controversial but interesting. And, and what you realize is... You forget, you don't realize how small Twitter is until you're off it, and that it's it's the same people who believe that the world is that world, and it's not. And they're talking to each other, and they think that the ratio or the number of likes is an indicator of veracity or truth in the world. And what you realize is it's a small group of people literally screaming at each other who are under yep. the impression screaming. that this tiny nation called Twitter is the world. It's yep. not. It just feels... When you go Bonuses. back to it, it just feels it feels yeah, remarkably small. I would agree. I only do it every now and then. I just did a big trans rant because I'm kind of getting pissed at the New York Times coverage of trans issues. But that's neither here nor there. And then I put it on post, of course. Um, but there are plenty of competitors, speaking of which, former Twitter staffers are behind startup networks Spill and T2. Uh, hmm. uh, among the front runners, insiders point to co-host, Hive Social, Discord. There's Post. And now uh, Kevin Systrom, who I'll be interviewing at South by Southwest, Artifact, which is more news-focused, but there's a social element to it. Um, Discord has 150 million active users, raised nearly a billion dollars across 16 rounds. Mastodon, about 1.3 million active users, a little smaller, raised less than $100,000 in 2021, according to some reports. Hive Social, by the way, is about a half a million active daily users, raised less than a half a a million dollars. Flipboard announced this week, that's still around, by the way, that it's joining the Fediverse. That's what this is called. Mastodon users will be able to view their feeds in the Flipboard iOS app. Um, so that's kind of interesting, this Fediverse, um, which is kind of a weird word. So what do you think is going to, is any of them going to break out? Because you do want to break out, or are they going to remain small like this? 
I don't know. I I, I feel like I'm too close to it because I'm an investor in one and I, I, I have a bias against Musk and Twitter. I don't have a feel. I'm curious what you or Casey thinks in terms of an honest. I'd love to see Walt Mossberg break all these down because whenever I read yeah. uh, reviews of his tech, I found he was just a, a genius of being dispassionate. Yeah. And, this is and, good. This is not good. Yeah. yeah, this good. And I can't do that with these things. I, I'm too yeah. close to it. What are your thoughts? Do you? It, what do you think the good money is on? Um, I don't know. I think it's all over the place. You have to settle in one, you know, suburb. I guess. I think they're all going to be small, right? Mm-hmm. And it, Twitter could have been the one, right? Of course, it could have been. It always remained so small, and and then it got ugly, and now, you know, Master Plan runs it. So it's not could anymore. And by the way, Twitter could use some work under the hood. The site experienced at least four outages in February, according to the organization Netbox. That's compared to nine outages in all of 2022, uh, mm-hmm. putting the technical errors aside. See, this is what I'm talking about. It's there, Scott. The problems are there. Discourse is still rubbing some people the wrong way. Comedian uh, Hassan Minaj deactivated his account on the air this week while hosting The Daily Show. Elon didn't make Twitter terrible. Twitter has been terrible. <laughs> Years. He's right. I would agree with him. You and I have talked mm-hmm. about this a lot. That's true. Um, he's made it tail- terribleer, uh, you know, kind of thing. But it's just, it's just, it's just stress the things that have been bad about it. He's he's sort of doubled down. So I don't know if there's not good people aren't going to just scatter to the winds and in these different things. And if there's one, and the, the one is probably Instagram and Facebook will continue to be for the vast majority of regular people the place where people are. But again, I don't know how you, you could figure out where everybody goes, right? It's, just, well, it's like a if, small if, town that scatters to the winds, essentially. If you think about it, you're trying to disrupt them. Clay Christensen would say, and this is what we're trying to do at Post, you focus on a niche or an area that's not covered well and start to kind of you know, climb up the leg, if you will, until the incumbent sees this great white and, and its torso is halfway in the, the great white's mouth. But anyways... Um, I think in the strategy uh, that I'm trying or that I think is the right one is to try and find responsible, fact-checked, great news organizations and say, let's try and work together to develop another um, source of cash flow through micropayments. I mean, I really am in in my book, I'm talking about this. I really do think, and I think I got this from you, the original sin of the internet was that they didn't, they built such amazing ad technology and they built such shitty micropayments technology. And if it had been, if you had said at the very beginning of the internet, all right, Mm -hmm. how are we gonna finance this thing? Either through advertising or through payments, where every time you get great content or something inspiring, you either sign up for some sort of membership or you pay one cent or two cents. I'm not sure that we automatically would have assumed it would have gone advertising. Yeah, And it's been so terrible for us. So I think that I, I think that the, an opportunity is to say, okay, how do we find, how do we do relationships with everyone from News Corp to UK to the BBC, and figure out a way to have it give them, to give them some um, some of the money for the content? Because the reality is, and I was having a a conversation with a woman we know who's running this great news startup that's on primarily using Instagram, and I'm like, I love you, I love your business. The problem is. Whenever you're dependent upon Meta or Google um, for your business, yeah. you ultimately get fucked. Yeah. Every one of them. Every one of them. I don't care who you are. 
you there, you never hear of someone saying the last decade of partnership with Meta has been great, said no company yeah. or individual ever. I'm hopeful that we move to a point where people are sort of used to, in a very elegant way, saying, post, there's all these Reuters articles, and most of them are free, but occasionally there's one that's more in-depth, and it says, okay, this is 25 cents, and you're like, click here. And to me, that just is a healthier model. Anyway, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what shakes out. I think it's very hard. Uh, people are very addicted to the anger on it on yeah, Twitter, agreed. and they're addicted to the, the to the dunking. movement. It feels like it's moving, right? The um, there's a reason yeah. I put the trans thing up there. I wanted certain people to see it, right? And then I, but I put it over on post. I put it over on another one, and um, I think probably if I had to guess, it would be Instagram will mm-hmm. regain its status in some fashion. I'm spending more time on Instagram. I've noticed that. I'm embarrassed to yeah. say it, but I've noticed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it, it I'm, I'm, well. I know in, in under the auspices of, um, I'm going to regret asking, what is it about the Times coverage of transgender issues that's oh. bothered you? Oh, well, it's not just Times coverage. Um, gosh, I would- Do we need a bigger to, boat? Uh, we need a bigger boat, but it, it, I wrote a very long thing. Look, uh, the, the coverage that they have been doing of-, of um, Trans people is over and above the actual problem. Um, so, you know, that the obsession with this topic, including with Dave Chappelle, like, like, remember when I said, you know, Dave Chappelle, he can joke about it, but why an hour and a half? Like a powerful person talking an hour and a half about a topic brings attention to it. And there was a great piece in the, I'll do it very quickly. Great piece in the Washington Post. I think they're doing a, about this. Uh, it was called our, "Our The State Is at War with Our Family." Clergy with trans kids fight back. It was about a Missouri bill. It was so fair and even-handed about this family. And so I think a lot of people this this topic's made more controversial to gin up political advantage. And and this piece was really good, and I wanted to celebrate it because I think the right's entire game is to get fair-minded people to think it's a fair fight, so they can. Um, so they can do what they want, which is to restrict transgender health care, period, for everybody. And in fact, there's now a whole spate of new state bills uh, restricting transgender health care for adults. That's their game. That's their actual game. And so um, I don't mind writing about, like, let's reconsider J.K. Rowling. Sure, you can do that. What's happened at The New York Times is um, there was a whole spate of these stories, let's reconsider, but all lots of them. Like, And when a big company like The New York Times does it, it sets the agenda, Right. And I don't say they shouldn't write it, but suddenly, like, it's the biggest detransitioning kids is a, the smallest mathematical amount. Um, 100%. people, you know, I mean, it's the smallest math. It's, I'm like, why don't you write about poor kids? You know, they did, but I like it, it, this kind of focus from very powerful people there is irritating. So what happened is a bunch of people wrote a note who worked there complaining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it got into the typical, we don't have advocates here at the New York Times, and anyone who did it will be warned for for signing this letter, which I always hate, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But powerful news organizations never see themselves as advocates, too, by over-focusing on alleged crises, where none of the numbers actually bears out the excessive coverage. And they think they're being fair, and they wear it like a shield, but really they want control of the people that work for them, right? And there was a quote by Astrid Herndon. As a black journalist, I've seen how charges of activism can be used to discredit journalists of unrepresented backgrounds who may come to work of, of reporting with a different lens. Different lens doesn't mean advocacy. I think the New York Times is just as much an advocate as by, by picking and choosing coverage as anybody else. And I'm all for debate. I'm all for fair coverage, even if it's painful. But over coverage is happening. And 
something Amanda said, and I'll stop my rant in a second, was that you wonder if anybody there has trans friends, right, at all. And one of the things that it reminded me of, and this is what I did write about, when I was a gay, a young gay person at the Washington Post, there were all these editors advocating, covering the side that wanted to quelch and change people like me, even though they were deeply inaccurate and lying, right? And I was like, why are we covering people who are at their heart lying to you about what's actually the really thing? And so when I pointed out, I was called an advocate and emotional. And I was like, you're publishing errors about the gay community, errors. And, and, and I was young. And so I didn't have as much pull. And, but I was a news aide and they had this egregious gay photo of an old gay trope. And I objected to it. I said, this is not the gay community. Can you just go out and do reporting on it or something? And I joked and said, we contain multitudes. You know, there's lots of, like, it's a little more complex. And the right wing was just trying to fuck with gays. That's all they were doing in order to gain political advantage. So what I did is, back then they didn't have digital photography. I took the photo, put it in my desk, and I left it there and they couldn't find it. And so they did, a, a, and I offered a better one, right? It was, I wasn't being propagandized. It was just a more accurate photo. And that's the one they use. And I don't regret it for a second. And so I just feel like overcoverage can be advocacy in a way, and they pretend it's not. That's all. So that's my rant. Thank you. The uh, I think it's a really important point, and I think that those progressives, and I, I consider myself a progressive, I think we just play into conservatives in very ugly factions' hands by saying, wanting to engage in an outrageous debate over um, don't say gay in schools. And I'm like, yeah. As someone who has kids in school in Florida, as someone who has served on the board of their kid's school, this is less than a non-issue. Yeah. We're not, we're trying to figure out a way, you know, to to teach them the skills to, to that such that they can go on and be productive citizens. And because we get outraged by it and we, we when everything is, is you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a cultural war. And this mm -hmm. is what the Republicans want. That's what they want. They want us, I mean, around trans, I, I have a friend who's running, or was running for re-election and asked for communication or thoughts around the transgender issue. And I'm like, I would leave it at everyone deserves dignity and rights. That's right. And we should err on the side of grace. Yeah. But don't take this up as like, die on this hill. They just I mean, write a lot about it, like, like, yeah. and then they get curdled. And you know why? Because transgender people yell at them. And I'm like, you know what? They yelled at people at Stonewall. Pesky, aren't they? Like, that's, that's where they focus on free speech. I was like, they're angry and they've been beaten down. And really is this, to me, is really is this the big issue of our day? And we're playing into the hands of people who want to restrict and eliminate, not just restrict, but eliminate. Anyway, we should move on. Our next topic is, is perfect on that, which is we're going to a quick break. When we come back, the debate over the origins of COVID are raging again. We'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Mehdi Hassan. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. 
Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian Intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Scott, we're back with the debate over the origins of COVID-19, which is still raging and still polarizing. Another thing that should have been more widely reported on all sides, by the way, in this case, unfortunately, the conspiracy theorists took over. So it seems if you said lab, you know, that it was a conspiracy, the Chinese trying to kill the entire world, and it became sort of anti-Asian. But if you've forgotten, there are two dominant theories of how the pandemic got started. One, the virus jumped from animals, it's called zoonotic, to humans, most likely in a market in China. Two, the virus spread because of a lab accident in China. There's actually a third that it was a purposeful accident in China, which that's what that's what got everybody against this second one. The lab theory got a boost this week when the Wall Street Journal reported that the Department of Energy, based on classified information, now considered the lab leak to be the more likely source. Um, that stirred up all the finger pointing all over again, specifically at big tech companies, Republicans saying the report is proof that big tech censored information that is not true, Republicans. Senator Eric Schmidt of Missouri tweeted, we've known all along, but federal actors colluded with social media giants to censor anyone who dared to question the origins of COVID-19. GOP Chairwoman Rona McDaniel, that piece of work, tweeted, we need accountability for both the Chinese Communist Party and big tech. I think we certainly need accountability for the Chinese Communist Party, but we're not getting it. Um, it, it, and then, but interesting, like half, half, there's no consensus in the intelligence community about this. Of the eight intelligence agencies, four lean towards the national origin theory with low confidence. And the conclusion from the Department of Energy made with low confidence. The FBI also supports the lab leak theory with medium confidence. The two remain agencies remain undecided. We're not going to know because the Chinese government isn't going to let us know, even if it was an accident. And so I, I, I don't know what to say here. It's just that Facebook and Twitter did in the early days remove posts about the virus being man-made. So thoughts, Scott? I actually think that the GOP has a really valid point here. Um, yeah. And that is, and I was, uh, you know, I fell into this. And that is, 
the notion or the thought that this might have originated from a lab in Wuhan was immediately by the left assigned as being racist and, and, and a conspiracy theory. Well, listen to their language when they did it. They did say it was purposefully, it was very, it had an a- anti-Asian tone, but go ahead. But the go truth ahead. doesn't care about your feelings and right. what's politically correct. And the reality is it is now a very viable uh, cause that, that there, is, there is credible evidence that this may have, in fact, originated as most likely an accident from a lab. There were two lab workers, two or three lab workers were hospitalized. I think it was late 19, uh, 2019. And I want to be clear, I was guilty of this. I immediately saw, oh my God, that's just racist, jingoist bullshit, you know. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there was some veracity to it and and we should have taken it more seriously. Agreed. And so, look, I, I think they have a point that it, it's just the politicization of everything. Every issue you immediately, almost unconsciously, identified as a left or a right, and that identifies how you feel about it. The ESG, the train accident, whatever, all the things. The, the whole point of academia, and one of the reasons I love the, the basic notion of a university is, at least initially, we're supposed to pursue the truth fearlessly regardless of who it offends, regardless of the narrative. And I would argue that, unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that pursuit or that pursuit, occasionally we get distracted from that pursuit. And when you're talking about a virus that's killed at least 7 million people, probably a lot more than that, 1.1 million in the US, regardless of what might offend you or what is seen as jingoist or racist, where the fuck did this thing come from? And the the thing that leads me to believe uh, that in fact it did come from the lab is that if it didn't come from the lab, the Chinese would be cooperating around validating that it didn't come from the lab. But the fact that they have been, they have literally resisted any thoughtful attempt by the World Health Organization or neutral bodies to go in and investigate this means most likely they're hiding something. I, because I, I, the, I agree with you. I do think, I, I've read a lot on this, to go to zoonotics is the first thing you should do because typically yeah. that's where they start, sense. right? Yeah. Right, makes sense. But l- listen, remember John Stewart got slammed for back for the for backing the lab leak theory it. on yeah. Colbert in 2021. Here he is reacting to the latest news on his Apple Plus TV show. Let's listen to John. The larger problem with all of this is the inability to discuss things that are within the realm of possibility without falling into absolutes and litmus testing each other for uh, our political allegiances as it arose from that. What he said, Jesus Christ, Right. exactly what he said. Yeah, and he's no, He's. I would not call him a a conservative. I would not, I would call him progressive, quite heavily progressive. But he's right, he's 100% right. I think one of the problems is to entertain the lab leak theory because it was was put out as a lab leak on purpose kind of thing. And there was all that anti-Asian violence at the time, if you recall. And so nonetheless, people should have calmed the fuck down and said, let's- Mm -hmm. We don't know. I think we don't know might have been real good at that moment for all the agencies mm-hmm. is we don't know. And they don't, you know, at a time of crisis, people always need to explain things they don't know. And that's, to me, the real shame here. I think John's right. I think you're right. The most productive way to do the discourse is say, everyone calm the fuck down. We don't know why this happened, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing, David Wallace-Wells actually used to work for New York Magazine, now is at the New York Times, that no matter the origin of covid and someday we will know, presumably, we should be having a conversation about lab safety. Absolutely. These labs are terrifying to me. Um, not to say that they shouldn't exist or that we shouldn't think about and do all kinds of like, what if, what if, and test things to know what could happen. But, you know, when you start doing that kind of stuff, you're going to 
there could be trouble. We, speaking of seeing the movie, every movie on lab leaks, um, Hollywood's already imagined this a hundred times. And so it's really important to be able to say, I don't know, and and tell the public. We, that's the, I think that was the greatest problem with the CDC in their response is they couldn't possibly say, we don't know. It's just so strange what we'll go to war for and what we ignore. And that is, yeah. if something had showed up with different colored skin in a turban and killed a million Americans, we would be on the verge of, we would probably, yeah. we would probably consider a nuclear strike. Yeah. But because it's one three thousandth the width of a human hair, um, even if it came out of China, even if it was possibly deliberate, which I don't think it was, but it was reckless. If in fact it did come out of a, a lab, it was reckless. Yeah. And they, they by the way, owe, owe the global community total transparency here and a big yeah. fucking apology and reparations if it did come out of a, a lab. Yeah. And also to use it as inspiration for, for universal global agency around controls and general standards for, I mean, something like this, what we've seen here, what if it had been you know, a virus that mutated faster. You, you you literally could have wiped out a quarter of the world's population. And we all have a vested interest in transparency here because this has hurt the Chinese economy. Um, so it just strikes me that if you want to be a global citizen, a good global citizen, I mean, we have weapons control, we have uh, global organizations around poverty, around hunger, around whatever. It strikes me that we probably need some sort of uniform standards around lab safety. Yep, 100%. And by the way, they should pursue both things, zoonotic, uh, just, I think we will never know probably because of the way the Chinese government is, but certainly we've got to talk to each other more. Like they've got to drop the anti-Chinese stuff to be able to talk about it. It could have been our lab leak, right? So sure. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on this, but we have to consider all the origins but, of everything and talk about it without adding anti-Asian stuff yep. and without adding, you're all trying to censor us. You know, I don't think that's the case. I think these scientists try their very best. And in times of crisis, they tend to, and these tech companies too, by the way, these tech companies shouldn't be in this business of deciding this stuff, period. I think if you go to incentives, it oftentimes explains, the, you know, kind of the best likely explanation. And mm -hmm. uh, I do think, because if you look at the behavior of them trying to not cooperate around any investigation around the lab theory leak, that that lens veracity of the notion was a lab leak. The reason why I don't think it was intentional, and no one no one knew this, but I actually think when we look back over history, over the last hundred years, I think COVID-19 and our response to COVID-19 will be seen as a great um, geopolitical cause of ascendance of the US. I think our response, our vaccines, our economic response, uh, as harsh as it is to say, and this in no way diminishes the loss of life, I think America comes out of COVID having reestablished its dominance. And so yeah. I don't think China would have wanted to play a play a hand in that. But I think yeah. my point is in, in 2050, I think we're going to look back and go, you know, being very unemotional about it, COVID-19 and America's response to it. Um, helped reestablish uh, U.S. dominance globally. That's a really interesting thing. That we certainly did make a mess along the way, though, with every issue, every single issue. But it's a perfect segue to our guest. Let's bring in our friend of Pivot. <music> Mehdi Hassan is the author of a show on MSNBC and Peacock, and the and the author of Win Every Argument: The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. Uh, welcome, Mehdi. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, guys. 
so speaking of arguments, we were just uh, talking about the debate over the lab leak theory. You hosted some conversations about COVID's origins. When the news came out, you tweeted, it's hard to have a good faith disagreement about a major issue if the issue itself has been hijacked by bad faith folks. Unpack that for us. I'd love, we'd love your thoughts on this. Yeah, a lot of people got very upset. I haven't had a response to a tweet like that from kind of crazy right-wingers for a long time. I mean, I've been trolled on that for days. I got, I got properly ratioed. People are very upset with that tweet. I think it's yeah. because they read it as some kind of admission of a conspiracy by the liberal media to stamp out this story. When in fact, mm. the very opposite. I actually covered the lab leak story on my show back in June. I had to go back and check. June 2021, I hosted a debate between Alina Chan, who's one of the biggest lab leak proponents, and Angie Rasmussen, the virologist is a big critic of it. So we don't run away from it, but I, I have a longer memory than most people I would like to think. I think we, our media culture is dominated by people with very short-term memories. There's always a reset button. Uh, I hate to go along with that. And I haven't forgotten 2020. I haven't forgotten Donald Trump standing in front of crowds shouting Kung flu, Kung flu. I haven't forgotten Peter Navarro saying the Chinese Communist Party created it in a lab and sent Chinese people to infect the rest of the world. Uh, I haven't forgotten Washington Times Daily Mail running bio lab, bioengineer, bioweapon stuff in January, February of 2020. So there was a lot of nonsense around this stuff. It's always been plausible that it leaked out of a lab, uh, but it was always a natural disease. No one ever claimed it was, no, no serious person ever claimed it was a bioweapon. And the problem was it was very, very quickly hijacked by the bioweapon conspiracy crowd and by the anti-China racist hawk crowd. Mm -hmm. That's undeniable. Like, go back, pull up the clippings, pull up the clips. I, I might do it on my show next week, in fact, because it frustrates me now that people are acting like we should have all just sat down in March of 2020 and said, let's have a good faith impartial reason debate about whether it came from the wet market or whether it came from the Institute of Virology. That was not what was happening. Donald Trump was president of the United States, was trying yeah. to deflect blame for crazy deaths here in America, talking about disinfectant, and began by praising Xi, his friend, but then decided to blame China and the China virus for everything else. So, All right, so, uh, it's, so it's nonsense. And by the way, one last quick point. The story that's come out this week does not vindicate anyone. No, it's right. low confidence for everything. It's not even low just low confidence. No yeah. one in the story is saying it was related to a military program. Tucker Carlson went on air this week, this week, and said, and what did he say? He said it was engineered in a lab as part of a military bio lab. The GOP House, the House GOP's position is that this was related to a Chinese biological weapons program. No, the intelligence specifically says we do not believe that. And by the way, only two out of the eight intelligence agencies that have looked at this say that it's lab leak. Four say it's zoonotic, it's from the wet market. And by the way, the two that say it's lab leak, one of them is the FBI, and I thought we don't trust the FBI anymore. <laughs> well, they don't. So there's two very viable ways this could have happened, right? And both should have been investigation, and, and probably all our agencies should have said, we don't know until we do know, so let's entertain both of them at the same time. But talk about this, what does this specific case tell us about the argument styles and the left and the right? Uh, because this, you know, this tweet by you really did get a lot of attention. So, I mean, Twitter is not the greatest place to have arguments. I keep telling myself that, but then I keep doing it again and again. I'm sure you're in a similar boat. Uh, I, I was <laughs> going to have a chapter in my new book about arguing on Twitter. And then I thought, well, no, uh, maybe that's for a sequel. But, um, look, I think what the, the COVID as a whole, the whole handling of the pandemic and why I actually think the right have won a lot of the messaging battles on vaccines, on masks on lockdowns, on school closures, and now perhaps on lab leaks, 
uh, is because A, the right-wingers have a very clever tactic, which is to declare victory in the middle of the game when the game's not over and say we won um, and allow kind of both sides' media to indulge. They did it on Mueller. I mean, the Mueller report. Oh, they misrepresented that before the findings were even out. And they've now left a legacy where everyone thinks the Mueller report showed no collusion or showed Trump did nothing wrong, which is not what the Mueller report shows. And I think similarly now on COVID, it's a very clever tactic to declare victory. And separately, the whole approach to pushing back against COVID mitigation measures was very cleverly framed by the right as freedom, liberty, standing up against oppression. People in America love that stuff. These are the values that appeal to Americans. And they very quickly realized that if you make something about identity and about values, you win. And liberals, leftists, progressives, members of the academic community, the scientific community, they think if we make it about the facts and the figures, just one more peer-reviewed paper, then we win. That is not how the human brain works. That's not how people, that's certainly not how Americans engage in debate or persuasion. So your book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking, do we want to win every argument? Isn't there a need for debate or conflict to take on a level of consideration and acknowledgement of other points? It strikes me that we're in a situation now where we don't want to win every argument? It's a great question. A lot of people have asked that question. So let me address it in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, 100% agree with you. You should not want to win every argument. I make it very clear in the dedication page on the front of the book that I do not win arguments with my wife and I don't want to win arguments with my wife. So I'm very clear about situations (laughs) where you don't want to win every argument. But people have jumped on the title and said, win every argument. You shouldn't want to win every argument. I mean, I could have written a book called Drive Every Car. Doesn't mean I'm telling you to go out and drive every car. Literally, I'm saying, here's a set of skills that allows you to drive every car. You can choose when is the best moment to win that argument. Because some people, they don't have a choice, Scott. Some people need to win an argument. It might be a job interview. It might be something their job depends on. You might be a prosecutor in court um, where you have to convince this jury to stop this person you believe is a murderer from getting off. So the point of the book is to say, here is a skill set that you can learn that should help you win any argument you choose to win. Because the reason I wrote the book is because I hate when people say, well, you were just born this way. You came out of the womb doing this stuff. I'm not like that. No, I'm saying actually anyone can pick up these skills. They've been around since Aristotle. Um, And just on your point about, you know, should you want to win every argument in the big stuff these days? I think people should want to win. For example, Mm -hmm. democracy. I believe that democracy is at Mm -hmm. stake in America right now. I believe Mm -hmm. there's an existential threat to our uh, democracy, our free press, et cetera. Those are arguments you cannot shy away from. Those are arguments you cannot keep your head down on. And those are arguments that my side, I would argue the pro-democracy side, is in fear of losing because we're confronted by people who've degraded our public discourse. We're confronted by gaslighters and BS merchants who aren't interested in the rules of formal debate or facts and figures. And therefore, I would like to see people who believe in democracy and freedom be equipped with the rhetorical tools to win those very vital battles. So when you think about that, how do you have good faith disagreement? Because there doesn't seem to be any good faith disagreement. It's always a one-up kind of thing and a dunk. And obviously, I've gone way off Twitter. Scott's sort of gone off Twitter. You clearly haven't. Um, I'm just using it as the example because it is a very small little world of, of speaking of echo chambers. It's the echoist chamber there is. But what is a good faith? How do you have a good faith disagreement? And how do you decide when to engage and when to walk away? It's a great question. And I talk a lot about the phrase good faith in the book and about the need. And I genuinely believe in good faith disagreement because I believe that democracy cannot survive with that. That's the reason I wrote the book. That's the reason why I enjoy debating and arguing and value it so much. Because, you know, I, I quote the French essay, Joseph Joubert, that it's better to debate an issue without settling it than to settle it without debating it. There's an intrinsic value to the process, to truth seeking <laughs> in that way. And I think you're right. It's, it's really tricky. 
you know, people say, well, what is a bad faith argument? How do you define it? And, you know, it's like the Supreme Court definition of porn. You know it when you see it. Uh, you know, there's so many different ways uh, to right. engage in a bad faith argument. People who shift the goalposts, people who make claims without any evidence whatsoever, people who only engage in abusive ad hominems. Um, those are people you should probably walk away from. I was going to write a chapter in the book on when to walk away from argument. I didn't. Maybe that's saved for a sequel because yeah. there are arguments, Cara, that yeah. I choose not to have. To go back to Scott's earlier question, like people say to me, would you have Marjorie Taylor Greene on your show? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have an argument with Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's pointless. She, uh, she's a grifter. She's not interested in any facts or mm-hmm. figures. She doesn't even believe most of what she's saying, probably. Why would I give her a platform, especially on live TV, to, spout, to spew uninterrupted nonsense? So there are some arguments you should walk away from, but good faith arguments. I mean, I write a chapter in the book on listening. Right. Something we don't do in arguments. And I'm a bad listener. I say that openly in the book. My wife laughed at me when she heard I was writing a chapter on listening. Um, listening, empathetic listening is a very important uh, part of having a good faith argument. Because if you're just having mm-hmm. a, a debate where you're waiting for your turn to speak, then that's not a good faith. Uh, debate or argument. But if you're actually critically listening to what the other person is saying, if you're empathetically listening to what an audience is saying, for example, in a political context, then actually everyone feels like they have a stake in the conversation and everyone feels like they're going somewhere. Uh, And I give the argument, I give the example in the book of 1992 Town Hall in Richmond, Virginia, where a questioner asks uh, George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, and of course, ridiculously, Ross Perot, uh, what they, how the national debt has affected them. Bush isn't paying attention, looking at his watch, gives a nonsense answer about interest rates. Bill Clinton goes up to the woman and says, tell me how it's affected you. And that's the beginning of a, of a great conversation, someone who's right. automatically persuaded by one person in front of them. Yeah. So you sent us a clip of an interview you did with John Bolton. Set us up for this and what were you arguing about? So John Bolton has done a lot of interviews. John Bolton is a man who I don't like, but I respect him as a debater. He's a very clever guy. You can't question his intellect, whatever else you question about him. He's been debating since his Yale days. And he agreed to come on my show in 2020. I don't know why. I was surprised. Um, And we wanted to do an interview with him. And we looked at what he was promoting his book. And I didn't want to ask him what everyone else was asking him. I like to ask questions that other people aren't asking. And I looked in his book and he hadn't mentioned the fact that he he gave speeches, paid speeches for an Iranian opposition group called the MEK, who are nuts. They're a bunch of cultist misogynists. So I decided to press him on that angle. How much of your antipathy towards Iran is to do with geopolitics? How much of it is to do with the fact that you've had a long association with a group called the MEK, which was once a terrorist group banned by the State Department while you work there? You don't mention it in your book. This is really about as low as it gets. The, the fact is that Hillary Clinton, perhaps someone you support, took the MEK off the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. How about that? I speak what yeah, I believe. She took, she took it off in 2012. You were speaking with them in 2010 when they were still a banned group. Yeah, no, look, that, 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 you're simply wrong on your facts on this. I speak, no, you were there in I, Paris in 2010 speaking at the MEK rally when they were still a banned terrorist group, according to the State Department. my opinion. Nobody buys my opinion. And you can ignore that if you want. I'm very comfortable. I have never said anything other than what I believe. And we are now, sir... 20 minutes into this interview, which you said was for 15. All right. That didn't seem good. Yes. Mindy, can I ask a question? I don't, uh, and I struggle with this as someone who's a podcaster interviewing people. And there's a reason we let Kara lead the interviews. (laughs) And when I hear that, I feel like you're purposely putting him on his heels to score points with your liberal viewership that you aren't having a productive conversation, that you are so aggressive there 
that you yourself are reducing the likelihood of a productive conversation. So um, obviously, I disagree with you on that. And I and I understand my wife is actually takes a similar yep. view to Scott that some people don't like such confrontations. And I think the American media has suffered because your point of view has dominated and we haven't had enough challenging conversations. And the reason why I have partly succeeded in a career here in the US in people like Jonathan Swan uh, did well with their Trump interviews because people are quite frustrated that American interviewers have been so deferential to people in power for so long. And that it that took- we engage in both sidesism and don't really call people out. And, and not just that, but I'm just talking about the tone. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you do need a bit of, you can yep. call it aggression, combativeness, belligerence, whatever it is. Someone like John Bolton, who filibusters, who has talked over and bullied interview, yep. interviewers for years. And it took 20 years, 20 years from the Iraq war, whatever it was, 18 years at the time for someone to ask him, as I did later in that interview, you know, mm-hmm. does he have any qualms? Does he have, does it rest on his conscience that tens of thousands of people died in Iraq because of him? I think those are questions that need to be asked. And a lot of American interviewers, sadly, are a little uncomfortable asking such questions. And I take your point about scoring points mm-hmm. for liberal viewers. Maybe that's part of it. I'm not going to pretend otherwise that I want to get views, but I also think it's about holding people to account. I mean, I, d- I do what I do because I want to hold people to account. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I'd go be an accountant. Do you think you're just as tough on on people from your side of the aisle, liberals, and when you do that? Yeah, I try to be. And in fact, liberals get very upset because sometimes they expect a, a kind of softball interview from a fellow liberal, especially on someone like MSNBC. And mm-hmm. no, I try and hold people to account. I, If you watch my exchange with Ron Klain on Biden's support for Saudi Arabia, it was a tough interview. MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, was behind that killing. And yet you haven't held him accountable. Why? It's been our government's longstanding policy not to personally sanction uh, heads of state, uh, leaders of government uh, in re- in countries where we have diplomatic relations. He's not Why? the head of state, Because though. we need to also, we also... Ron, well, he's, he's not the a, head of state. He's, a, he's very... Uh, Jen Psaki uh, is someone I've, I've grilled before. She put the quote on the book saying, that. look, am I, am I, am I, is it tonally the same? Not necessarily. But then, for example, Tony Blair. If Tony Blair was in front of me and someone I've never got to interview... Oh, I would push him as aggressively on Iraq as I push John Bolton, regardless of the fact that he's a center-left prime minister who I once voted for. So um, I think there might be tone differences, but no, certain issues, people need to be pressed. I try and be tough on everyone. Obviously, certain people, uh, you know, Cara, the reality is we live in an age right now where one group of politicians are particularly deceitful and offensive and bigoted. And that is reflected sometimes in the tone of my commentaries and interviews. That's that's a reality. But I, I, the, I, the issue is, though, it does. And I try very hard to get as yes. many people from all sides as possible, and not to be both sidesism, but more to be like at some point it, it it degenerates into a way that's not illuminating to people in any way. And so you have to be very careful not to seem because one of the reasons I don't watch cable that much anymore is I'm like it's this. I know exactly what's happening. Like you know what I mean. It never illuminates. It, it's a lot of fire, but no illumination whatsoever. Well, that's not always the case. And I would say, watch my show and you've been on my show. And I'm, when you're when you're on my show, it's certainly illuminating. So I wouldn't want people not to watch you when you appear on my show. Thank but, you. Um, but I would say this, look, to go back to Scott's point about, is it productive or not? I, I say context is everything. We have very, very productive interviews with experts mm-hmm. and with interesting people such as yourself on my show. But then we do have the more lively, uh, uh, combative interview with people like John Bolton. What I would say to you, Scott, is let me turn it around. Let's say you were sitting with John Bolton talking about the MEK. Mm-hmm. What would you have asked that would have been illuminating that he would have engaged in good faith? Ooh, good one. I would have brought up the point. And I would have said, what do you say to people who say it's, you know, hypocritical and that you're sort of bought and sold as evidenced by this? And I would have let them respond. And I probably wouldn't. Look, you have a style and you have a show on MSNBC and I don't. So you kind of win. 
but I, I, when I hear that, I, that tone, and, and again, it's hard because it's one clip, right? And my guess is we should look at the entire body of your work. But I find that that's easily going to, it sounds to me like that's going to digress into a food fight where, where the person doesn't trust you and it just thinks you're trying to embarrass them. So, so here's, here's the thing, Scott, what I would say. Number one is if you did that, he would be delighted because there's no follow-up to point out that he's lying mm -hmm. to the viewers about when he spoke to the group. But just on the broader point. Well, I think you can say, I think you can say what you said. Well, that, that doesn't feel accurate. Good. So it's a tone issue. That's great. But just on the wider, just on the wider point, Scott, that you're making, I just want to address this really important point. I say this in the book. Sometimes you're not trying to persuade the other person. I'm not really interested in whether John Bolton agrees with me. He's not going to change his mind. He's John Bolton. I am interested in the audience seeing that people in power can be held to account for their lies. They can be held to account for what they've done. And I think that's what's been missing too much from our discourse. Sometimes you're not trying to convince the other person. You're trying to convince the third person. You say the liberal audience, the point score. I'm saying yeah. the American public that needs to hear some sharp conversations. And perhaps sometimes my tone is off. I'm only human. But I do think the style is very important to be tough. I do think that's important. Okay, so let's talk about a place where it doesn't happen in social media. Uh, tactics do change online, and we talk about different argument styles for the left and right. There's no winning on social media. It's just one dunk after the next, back and forth, and then it degenerates, you know, to what Scott was very quickly, which yeah. is no one's hearing a thing um, at all. So how does that change online, and why do you think that is? I agree with that. That That's where I would 100% agree with Scott, is that Twitter is a place where it does just descend into kind of mob mentality, dunking, uh, ratioing. It's it's really bad. And if I wasn't so addicted to it, I would have probably cut myself off a long time ago. 100%. You and me both, brother. <laughs> Why haven't you both? I mean, it's it's an addiction, Carl. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's an I'm not hiding. I, I've told my yeah, family. I'm, 100%. I can't. I, I was getting palpitations when I thought that night a few months ago it was all going to shut down because of technical problems. Um, it's a place I both love and hate at the same time. Um, I do think there is some value. I wouldn't write it off completely. I'm not one of these people who says, oh, this hell site. It has huge advantages Agreed. in terms of reaching yeah. audiences I could never reach yeah. otherwise, in terms of connecting with people I could never connect with. And some debates are really interesting. Like I'll give you the, let's, let's go back to what we started with the lab leak debate. There are some fascinating conversations going on between scientists on Twitter right now. They're really interesting people that 10 years ago, you and I would never have been able to connect with, would have to go find some boring paper they wrote on their university website to find out what they think on this issue. Right now, I can see really interesting scientists who I follow unpacking that Wall Street Journal story, that Department of Energy Intelligence Assessment, and making good points. So it's out there if you want to find it and be part of those more productive conversations. But mm -hmm. sure, we're going to do the dunking along the way. Uh, that's human nature in an age of social media, sadly, right? which cleverer people like yourself know, understand much more than I do about those kind of uh, incentives. Where do you get inspired and find you can you can find good information? Uh, that is a great question. So good information, like I'm very critical of the American media and people know that. I've been very open in my criticism even after joining NBC. It was mm -hmm. easier when I was on NBC. But one thing I've always said is like, I can disagree with a New York Times op-ed columnist or some headline, but the investigative journalism that our mm -hmm. media still does is the gold standard. I think some of the yeah. stuff that people at NBC News, my organization do, people at the New York Times and the Washington Post, both foreign investigative journalism, 
and domestic, uh, I think is hugely valuable. And that stuff still inspires me. I'm not an investigative journalist myself. I don't think I, I have the skill set or could ever be that person, but I'm great admiration to people who break these important stories and tell us what's going on behind the scenes, uh, whether it's in China, whether it's in the United States. So that is something that inspires me. If you're talking about holding people to account the stuff I do, then, you know, unfortunately it is. I do look across the pond and I look at the UK where I do think it is slightly done a bit better and a, 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 a maybe something you don't like, but that's a taste opinion for me. That is the kind of stuff I enjoy watching. You know, when I, when I saw Ben Shapiro, the hero of the conservative debate, right? The man who puts up YouTube videos saying, I've destroyed X, Y, or Z on a college campus. When he goes and gets interviewed by Andrew Neil and then gets a British, a BBC British interviewer who's a conservative who basically runs rings around him. That for mm-hmm. me is enjoyable. I enjoy that. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm a nerd. I enjoy that stuff. All right. Last question. Scott and I frequently argue. That's our entire thing. Um, one of, I think we argue well, actually. One of the more harmless arguments is about whether my Chevy Bolt is sexy. I'd like to tell you to tell us who's winning that argument. Is the Chevy Bolt sexy as a car? I think, I yeah. think the Chevy Bolt is as sexy as the person driving the car. And that is how I would define it. Oh, nice. Oh, no. God. Let me phrase the question. Yes, you should reframe. I say in the book, always reframe. Am I more likely to get a random blowjob in a Tesla or a Chevy Bolt? Your turn. (laughs) This is what I have to do. He's got his head in his hands. Let's bring back John Bolton. I can't, I can't, that, you've literally thrown me off that. I wasn't seeing that coming. Look at him. He's flustered. He's speechless. I didn't see that coming. In all the media interviews I've done, I didn't get that question. Exactly. The flaccid penis joke always ends up there. Go ahead. What I would say to you, Scott, is, is that joke contributing to a productive discussion and illuminating our lives or not, Scott? Ah! There you go. You know what, you know what the answer was? The answer, the right answer was no. No right answer involves Tesla as the answer is what I would say. There you go. I agree Oh, with that. very well done. Anyway, last question. The ve- what's the most important thing? Not winning every argument. What is the empathetic here at listening, I think, is I suspect is what. I actually think the more important than anything else I have a chapter on it is confidence building. Unless you have confidence, you can't do anything. You can't listen. You can't speak. You can't engage. Mm-hmm. You can't take a position. And we lack a lot of confidence uh, in our societies. We defer to people who are overconfident. And I talk in the book about the need to build confidence because that's mm-hmm. the stepping stone for everything else. Yeah, that's the explanation for Elon, for sure. Anyway, the (laughs) the book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. It's available now. The Mehdi Hassan Show airs Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern at MSNBC and Tuesdays on Peacock. Thank you so much, Mehdi. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mehdi. Nice to meet you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Even Even the end question. Thanks, both. One more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. You know, there's this idea in business that some people are born to be leaders. You either have it or you don't. But leadership, like any skill, can and should be learned over time. Whether you've climbed to the top of the corporate ladder or are just starting out, you'll find valuable insights at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a leading destination for smart management thinking. And on their website, hbr.org, subscriptions are just $10 a month, which gives you unlimited access to the same level of expertise. Things like case studies, newsletters, podcasts, articles written by some of the world's top minds. I use HBR in my research when I do articles or when I'm thinking about what to talk about on Pivot. I find them really interesting. I find them complete. I find them different. And you can find all kinds of industries covered. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. 
What a bargain. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, save 10% off your HBR subscription. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT. Okay, Scott, let's hear some predictions. So I I think there's going to be a fairly significant um, punitive award to Dominion. Uh, I, I'm this uh, Dominion versus News Corps. Um, it, it's just shocking to me. And I don't think anyone's going to be surprised where I, I imagine you land on this or I land on this. But, you know, you call yourself Fox News. You're the most watched news program in America. And the anchors and the, the CEO of the company and the founder know that they're lying. And they continue to lie in an environment where we have insurrections, in an environment where people don't trust each other. And it just is, and, and I, was saying, I was trying to get to the human element of this. You're 92 years old, which means there's like a one in three chance you're gonna die in the next 12 months. I mean, and what, it's like, what? I'm just trying to get into the size, this guy's brain. Is it because he hates the other side so much? Is it because he sees a profit motive? What is in your head when you decide to create a culture and you make the decision that we know this isn't true, yeah. but we see an opportunity to inflame our viewers and that could lead to really ugly places. In addition, the board should be voted out because 61%, let's just go to straight corporate governance distinct to the ethics and my virtue signaling and disappointment. The, this company is a publicly traded company. The board is supposed to show care of duty here and protected shareholders, 61% of the shareholders are not the Murdoch family. So let's just assume yeah. that the Murdochs have their own motives. And but I'm not even gonna realize and, that. To point that out again, they're not the controlling shareholders in that regard. You know, so I'm not even gonna try and figure out what's in, uh, going on between his ears. But 61% of the shareholders invested in an organization that claims to be fair and balanced and veracity, even for Fox News directly impact shareholder value. They are probably yeah. gonna get a billion dollar plus fine here. Uh, by the way, where these companies make all of their money or most of it in terms of high margin money in an election season is from not only Republican candidates, but Democratic candidates advertise Locally. on Fox. And guess sure. what? They were sharing information on Biden's advertising strategy with yeah. Jared Kushner. Yeah. So there are so many things distinct of the ethics that are gonna really damage the 61% of shareholders that aren't the Murdochs, that the board really should be taken to account here, that you are not, re you're not doing your job. You're not representing stakeholders Yeah, they're here. shitty managers for sure. So I think one, my prediction is one, there's gonna be a serious award here. This is a very high hurdle to clear and Dominion's lawyers have cleared it. I mean, yeah. they have presented so much evidence that they acted in bad faith, they knew they were spreading misinformation, they knew this would hurt Dominion, they knew they were lying, they had information that showed that these, this was not the truth, and they decided to engage in an editorial strategy to spread these, these falsehoods. They will get, in my opinion, my prediction is it's gonna be a large, not only a large monetary award, punitive award, mm -hmm. but you're gonna see some board members rightfully be kicked out of the board here. There is no way you can be a board member of a media organization and not have heads roll when you have this type of reckless behavior, this negligence that results in this sort of shareholder damage. I don't know. Prediction. I've seen some pretty bad boards. Look at over at no, Tesla. No, no, it might be, it might be, 
me just like screaming into the wind. <laughs> yeah, it's a very high bar. I mean, it's interesting. I've read all the various and sundry, you know, debates among media lawyers, and some of them think this is slam dunk. Others do not. It's a very yeah. high bar. We'll see. I think they'd certainly deserve it, but and it's a jury trial, but they'll keep appealing it all over the place. The good thing about it is it'll distract them. Um, and it, the rest of his life, Rupert Murdoch will be in lawsuits over this, and it will. There's going to be shareholder lawsuits it, for the it next. It will occupy him almost. until he's in the ground, and so good. That's what's going to happen. It, it, it probably one of the executives will have to go, like Suzanne Scott or someone like that. Um, but they'll. They, this is what they're going to be doing the rest of their pitiful lives. So that's my feeling. So anyway, this this, this company's not backing off. FYI, they haven't, and they won't. Um, and they shouldn't. So anyway, great prediction. That's a really great prediction. We'll see. We want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. Scott, that's the show. I like our arguing. I think it's actually okay. It's all right. It's that's okay. right. If yeah. we're wrong, I don't want to be right, Kara. That's correct. And we'll be back on Tuesday for more. Will you read us out? Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Intratot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows and Neil Severio. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back next week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. My good friend Scott Sabah is not feeling well. I am wishing him strength and good health. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here, chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.